Well, good morning. My name is Dwight Waldrop. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary. And our scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. There's one in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Again, that's Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And God's word says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. May God bless the reading of his word. Hey, good morning, friends. Sweet. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here today. I'm Byron Bradshaw, the pastor at Calvary. Uh, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to stay in Matthew chapter 22 today. We'll just go from th- verses 34 through 40. Uh, but if you do not know, uh, Murray Wilton, who used to be the pastor of Southside Baptist Church, where I was a youth pastor for a few years, he'll actually be preaching the entire month of June. So I would encourage you to attend to hear Murray. He's, uh, if you've ever met him before, he's South African. He has this really heavy South African accent, if you know what I'm talking about. If you have a local celebrity, even if you've never heard him preach before, you've probably heard of him. Uh, but he has a PhD in New Testament from New Orleans, really smart guy. I think he'll do a great job. But today we're going to kind of switch gears. We're just doing kind of a one-off sermon. The reason I'm doing this is several months ago, when back in January, I planned out the whole month of, uh, the whole book of Colossians. So I planned out all 13 weeks and I knew that I would end the book of Colossians last week. So I saw this week coming, so to speak. So the question you have is, what do I do for this one-off random Sunday? Well, uh, if I get hit by a bus or if I get eaten by a black bear in the Smokies, uh, I hope that I'm remembered for this one sermon. Out of all the sermons that I could preach to a Christian, this is the one that I would like to share. Um, I hope that I'm remembered for this particular sermon. I plan to about every, every, once every five years or so to kind of revisit what the Christian life truly is all about. So let me just ask you the question, what is the Christian life? All about. If you could boil down your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, what should you focus on? What is the one thing you could boil it down to? What is the one essential fundamental for following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Today, I want to go back to the very foundation, the very fundamental of following Christ Jesus. Today, we're going to have a, gentlemen, this is a football moment, okay? So this is a football, and you're wondering why I even have this, because it's not even football season, okay? Some of you are probably wondering if I'm going to use this to throw out some of my sleeping today, just to kind of keep you a little bit paranoid today, okay? If I see a bobbing, okay, I'd probably hit your person beside you. It'd be bad, okay? Anyways, I'm um, not that great of a thrower. Um, but in 1961, coming off his loss in the NFL championship, Coach Vince Lombardi walked into his locker room with 38 professional football players before him with the Green Bay Packers, 
And coming off of his loss, he walks in with a football and he says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Duh, right? I mean, you're talking to professional football players. They know exactly what it is. What, is, what was Vince Lombardi doing? He's bringing them back to the very basics, the very fundamental of the game of football. What's interesting about that statement is that he, after that statement, Vince Lombardi never lost another playoff game as head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He realized that bringing them back to the very basics of playing the game was essential for them to fulfill their potential as football players. It's the same thing in the Christian life. Bringing us back to the very basics of the Christian life is absolutely critical and essential for us to truly live out our full potential as Christians. Without a basic understanding and a fundamental of Christianity, we cannot truly live out our purpose. So what is the most basic idea? If someone walked up to you today and asked you, what is the Christian life truly all about, what would you say? Now, growing up 20 years ago, if somebody would have walked up to me and said, what is the Christian life all about? If someone would have asked me that question, I probably would have said something like that. You know, you know, you know being a Christian, you know, it's about being a good person. It's about showing up to church all the time. If you're really uber spiritual, you know, you memorize a Bible verse every once in a while. You try to read through your Bible once a year. Anybody else try to do that and like flounder in like May? Anyways, moving on. You know, if you get the opportunity to share your faith, that's kind of what I thought Christianity was all about. And, And then about 20 years ago, someone came to my life and told me that, you know, the Christian life is really about having a relationship with God. It's about knowing Him and making Him known. It's about understanding uh, his purposes in your life through the word of God. And then what he did was he told me that I was meant to have a relationship with God. And then he just simply opened the Bible to this passage I'm going to share with you today. And it kind of totally transformed my life. And, and, and to be honest with you, as I was thinking about this passage, I've, I've preached on this passage a few times before. As a matter of fact, I preached this uh, this passage, the, the Sunday I was candidating here some six years ago. And I had less wrinkles here, okay? Um, and that day, when I heard him open the scripture some 20 years ago, changed my life. And this is really a motto of what I see personally. If I could have something put on my tombstone, if they could fit all the words, I hope they would be able to fit verse 37. So if you have your text in front of you, go to Matthew chapter 22. Today we'll go verses 34 through 40. And in a sense, Matthew chapter 22 is Jesus's. Gentlemen, this is a football moment. He brings them back to what it's truly all about. And many of you are probably familiar with this passage. I'm sure if you were here six years ago, then you might remember some of the content I'm going to share. And if you remember some of the content I shared here today, then that tells me I did my job. So, cha-ching. If you don't, well, anyways, moving on. I didn't do my job that day. Okay. But what we see in our text is the text breaks down into three main parts. You have the challenge by the lawyer, by the Pharisees in verses 34 through 36. You have the command in verse 37 and 38. And then you have the cause in verse 40 or the reason why those summarize the entire law. So if you have your text, what I want to do very quickly, since this is a one-off sermon series, one-off sermon, I want to kind of paint the context for our passage today. This is the question we are answering this morning. Um, If you were to take the book of Matthew and and put it in your hand, 
Then when you come to Matthew chapter 22, you would notice that this passage is toward the end of the book. So, okay. So what many of us realize, many of us knows what happened at the beginning of the book and what happens at the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, you have some really important genealogies and his birth and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end, of course, what do you have? You have the death, resurrection, and then the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28. But so when we come to Matthew chapter 22, we, we probably realize that Jesus is close to his crucifixion. But what many of us don't realize is how close he actually is. When we come into Matthew chapter 22, where are we within the context of the book of Matthew? Well, the clock starts ticking on his death. Tick, 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 tick. Matthew chapter 21. That is the beginning of Jesus' in a sense, death clock. That's where it begins to start rolling. Because what happens in Matthew chapter 21? You have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. What, why is that significant? He is proclaiming himself to be the king and the Messiah of all of Israel by that one particular event. And so when Jesus doesn't fulfill their expectations in Matthew chapter 21, what do they do less than six days later? They crucify him and he's risen again. So where we are today is that Jesus is probably Monday. So it's probably Monday of the week that he is crucified and he rose again. So wait a second. So Monday and then you have Tuesday, Wednesday. What happens Thursday night around midnight or 1 a.m.? He is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is crucified on Friday. He's in the tomb on Saturday and then he raises again on Sunday. So Jesus is only... Give or take 72 hours away from dying. And he knows that. I mean, he's the son of God. He knows all things. So let me just ask you the question. Um, if you knew on Wednesday that you were going to for sure die, okay, not to be morbid. Okay, sorry if that depresses you. Okay. Um, so if you knew on Wednesday that you were for sure going to die, what would you do today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning? You, some of us think we would cross off our bucket list, you know, go skydiving, but I don't think that's the case at all. We would probably spend time with who? The people that we love and communicate to them the things that we hold most dear. Jesus is no different. You think about what happens in Matthew chapter 21. Between that and the end of the book of Matthew, you have Jesus spending time with those who he truly loves, his 12 disciples, because he knows his time is going, it's slipping away, he only has a few more days to live, and he spends his last few moments with his disciples and communicating the most important message in Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40, that a Christian could hear. So, really the question we're answering today is this. What is the Christian life all about? And so the Christian life is two. So we'll see the three pieces of this passage, and then we're going to kind of unpack the points that Jesus makes in this particular passage. And what we see in Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 36, is the challenge. It is the challenge. So notice in your text, the challenge that the Pharisees present to this young man named Jesus, and it is found in verse 34 and following. 
But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. So I want you to notice up here, verse 34. So what do you see? You see two different groups of people. You see the Pharisees and you see the Sadducees. Now, if you're not familiar with the culture of the first century, who are those people? The Pharisees are kind of the middle class, hyper, uber religious. I mean, they have to follow 613 Laws that they kind of have created. They see 613 different rules that they have to abide by. I mean, I, I can't even remember what I ate for lunch. I mean, man, much less 613. I mean, how exhausting would that be? Anyway, so you see the Pharisees, they're hyper-religious, middle class, and then you see the Sadducees, that Jesus had silenced them. And if you want to know more about how he silenced them, just go back earlier in chapter 22. But the Sadducees are the rich Jewish politicians. They're the aristocrats of the first century. So you see Jesus. He silences the Sadducees. So the Pharisees gather themselves together. They call a huddle. And they try to call a play. So they can trip up this young man named Jesus. And they gather this. One of them, a lawyer, an expert in the law, tried to test. Now the word test here in verse 35 and 36 is the, is the Greek word for temptation. It's not really the test that we would see in, you know, calculus or whatever. I didn't ever take calculus, so you're smarter than all of you. You took that. Um, but he, he's tempting Jesus. He's trying to catch him in the act. And this is what he asks. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in all the law? So really, verses 34 through 36 set, describes the setting. So you have Jesus silence the Sadducees over the issue of resurrection. Then the Pharisees, these really hyper-religious, smart people that can keep together 613 different rules. That would be an exhausting way to live, just saying. And they gather themselves together, they call a play, and they appoint this guy to ask this one question. What is the greatest commandment in all the law? What's the irony here? What's the irony in verse 36? Out of all the people that should have known the answer to this question, it should have been the Pharisees. I mean, they've spent their whole life studying God's word, and they're puzzled as to what it all boils down to. They have kind of analysis paralysis. You track with me on that phrase? They have spent their entire lives studying God's word, and they're completely and totally clueless as to what it's all about. Um... How many, how many of you have ever known Christians that are the same, that have studied God's word, but then they seem to not even understand what this whole life is truly all about? So the Pharisees here, they ask the question, they should have known the answer, and what they should have seen is that, you know, the same principle is true today as it was back then, that following Jehovah, following Yahweh, following Jesus Christ is not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with the Lord. That out of a relationship with God, then we want to love him and then love others. But then I also find telling, what's the second observation with this question? So the irony is there, but think about who, who is Jesus? Who is he? I mean, the, the way my doctrine understands it, that in this particular circumstance, he is fully man and he's also fully God. So wait a second. So Jesus, in a sense, could have said anything. I mean, he's God, right? He, Jesus could have said, 
you know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow to a graven image. You shall not murder. You shall not do anything, any of these things. But what does Jesus say? How does he answer the lawyer's question? What is the Christian life all about? The Christian life is to, you see the challenge, and then you see the command or commands. And the first thing it's all about is in verse 37. And Jesus said to him, you shall love. If you have your, in your Bible, I would encourage you to highlight that, those three words. Because those three words in the original language is one, one, one word. These three in English are one word. It's the Greek word agape seis. It's the verbal form of agape. And it's a very uh, unique form in the original language. You don't see it very often. It's pretty rare, actually. And what the construction does... Sorry, super nerd. Okay. What the construction does, it gives us an idea of a timeless, absolute principle. So at the beginning of time, in the first century, and now today, and then forever, what is the Christian life truly all about? It is about loving the Lord our God. The same principle is true then, and it is true now, and it will always be true in the future. That's the idea of the original language. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. But if you have your text in front of you, what do you notice different about verse 37? It doesn't show it up here. Sorry, I didn't put it up here but anyways that's called unfallible anyways okay um what do you notice in your text in your bible it should be in all capital letters right track with me what does that show in your bible when you see an all caps verse in the new testament it tells you that it is from the old testament so jesus is reaching back to deuteronomy chapter 6 and he is reaching back to the torah or the the earliest parts of the Bible, and he is saying that back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the same principle is true in his day and then forever. This is called, this comes from something called the Great Shema. What's interesting about the Great Shema, have you ever heard of the Great Shema before? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. The Jewish nation would say the Great Shema every morning and every evening. So think about the irony of that. Here they are, the Pharisees have studied the Bible, all 613 rules, they've studied and studied, and then they're clueless. And oh, by the way, not only <laughs> have you spent your whole life trying to study the Bible, but you also say the exact verse every single day. And it just whizzes right by your eyes. You fail to see what the Christian life, what fallen God truly is all about. This verse comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in a sense... It is the Jewish nation's the national anthem, okay, or the Pledge of Allegiance. That should be better, okay. Um, but what is the message of the Bible? We see that the construction in the original language, verse 37, gives a timeless, absolute idea. But what is the message of the entire Bible? It is really what God's love for us, then what, compels me to then love God and Love others. So that's kind of the whole idea of the Bible, and it's no different in Matthew chapter 22. But then notice what I, what I love about these commands. I mean, it boils it all down. What is the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus could have said anything there. But he says, you shall love God. Friends, can I just say something? If you want to know what the Christian life is all about, it's all about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind and soul and then out of that relationship with god then we love others that's it man 
Now, we don't follow God out of a sense of trying to justify ourselves before him. We don't follow God out of a sense of do's and don'ts or making ourselves feel right. Friends, by the blood of Christ, we are made right if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We don't have to earn our way to heaven. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, the blood of Christ was sufficient to pay for yours and the whole world. Our life. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're meant to have a relationship with God, to love Him, to know Him, to love God, and then out of that relationship, to love others. But one of the things I love about these commands is that it gives you not only the answer to the question in verse 36, but it also tells you how to do it. Notice what it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Notice it says, all, all, all. What does he mean by heart? The Greek word I believe here, Matthew chapter 22, is the word cardia. It gives the idea of our emotions, our passion. Friends, we should love God with all of our emotions and passion. That's just part of who God made us to be, that we should love him with our heart, the seat of our emotions. But friends, listen to me. Um, we should not only love God with our heart. How many, you don't know, how many of you know somebody that, that is super passionate for God, loves him, but then goes, shoo, Okay, why? Because they don't have the foundation of the other two. You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart. How do we do that? How can we facilitate loving God with our emotions? I mean, personally speaking, this is my weakest part of loving the Lord my God. Um, these are, this represents actions, and this represents knowledge, and this represents emotion. Um, which one do you think I yield towards? This one, okay? This is Byron's world. I'm the son of an engineer, okay? Anybody else in the room relate to that? Um, so this one's difficult for me. This one I have to have purposeful discipline to do. How do I, how do we as people love the Lord of God with our emotions? I would say a couple different things. Number one, worship music. Anybody else like worship, worship music and it kind of gets you alive? Number two is the Psalms. And number three, uh, be around passionate people. Passion is contagious. So how do we love the Lord our God with all of our emotions and then actions? The idea of actions is something, is actually doing something. It shows one's ability and desire to do good things for God. Um, Think about the importance of this. Let me just ask, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been married in the room before? Okay, so can you really love your spouse only with emotion and with knowledge? Okay, think about that. Okay, let's say you know every single thing about your wife. And you really are passionate for her, you, you engage in emotional conversations, but you never do anything nice for her. What's that, what's that going to be like? <laughs> okay, how many of you have ever experienced that where you have to do things, you have to serve your wife? So emotions, actions, and then your knowledge. Um, mind here, the Greek, the Greek word is used 12 times in the New Testament. It gives the idea of our intellect, our ability to understand and rationalize. Um, how do we love God with our mind? We serve Him. We have a passion for Him. 
But how do we do this part? How do we facilitate our mind to love the Lord? I mean, a couple different ways. Number one is just to read the Bible. If you want to know about God, if you want to understand who he is, if you want to learn about him, the best source we have is the Bible itself. So read it. But then also, number two is pick up a systematic theology book. Okay. Um, how, how, many of you, you know, how many of you ever read a systematic theology book? Yeah, okay. So you're a nerd like me. Amen, brother. Okay. Brothers from another mother. Okay. Brothers and sisters. Okay. When I was in seminary, man, I thought systematic theology was like for the uber elites, you know, for the uber nerds, like the people that were much more, much smarter than I was. And then I actually, it was after seminary when I actually really just read a systematic theology book just without seminary lens. And I just realized that all they're doing is just talking about doctrines from a topical standpoint. What are angels? What are demons? What is salvation? What is, what is justification? If you want to learn about God, then just pick up a systematic theology book or read the Bible. That's really how you do it. So this is Jesus' answer to the question. He could have answered that question of a lawyer in any way he saw fit. But he said, you shall love. It is a principle that is timeless and absolute. It was, is, and will always be about loving the Lord your God. So then we see... Here, what is the Christian life all about? The Christian life is to love God and then it is to love others. Notice what he says in verse 39. This is the second piece. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many would agree that this is definitely the harder of the two? How many of you have ever met somebody that uh, drives you crazy? Okay, that makes you normal. Okay. But what I love about this answer is it also gives us not only the how, but the who. You shall love. It's the same word as in verse 37. Your neighbor. Now, let me fix your view on this word, these two words, your neighbor. The word neighbor in our culture gives the idea of suburban America. Okay, drop my, drop my remote. It gives the idea of my neighborhood, the person that is next door to me. They, they didn't really have suburban America, okay? That's not what the original language is saying here. He says, you shall love your neighbor. The word your neighbor is those near you. Literally in the original language, those near you. Think about how that changes your perception of what a neighbor is. A neighbor is not your next door neighbor. It is anybody that you can reach out and touch. Anybody that you can reach out and talk to. That is your neighbor. So loving your neighbor is not a matter of location. It's a matter of proximity. Somebody who's in a close distance to yourself. So somebody in the grocery store, somebody who's sitting in front of you today or behind you today, somebody sitting beside you, anybody that is close to you is your neighbor and we are to show them love. But how do we do that? As yourself. That's how you do it. If you have somebody near you, ask yourself the question, if I were them, what would I want? That's the answer to this room. You shall love your neighbor, those near you, as yourself. What would I want if I were them? What would I need if I were them? If I were hungry, what would I want somebody to do? If I'm in distress, what would I want somebody to do? If I'm hurting and grieving, what would I want somebody to do? That's how we love our neighbor as ourself. 
So love God and love others. You know, if I get hit by a bus on the way up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee or whatever this weekend, I hope you remember that. You know, Byron, the last sermon he ever preached was the Christian life is all about loving God and loving others. Because out of that, do we make disciples. Out of that, we share our faith. Out of that, we know the Lord. Out of that, we listen to the Spirit. We read the Word. We have spiritual disciplines. It all boils down. This is the football moment. The fundamental of the Christian life is to love God and love others. I know a lot of you know that. I know that this passage is really nothing new for most of us in this room. But it doesn't hurt to have a reminder, okay, <laughs> for me as well. So then you say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then notice here, the Christian life is to the challenge, and then you have the command, but then you have the cause or the reason why these two commands are uh, the greatest commands in all of the law. Notice in your text, on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, what? That loving God and loving others depend or originally hang or summarize the entire law. In other words, what? That if you love God, then you'll follow the commandments of the law that affect your relationship with God. If you love others, then you'll follow the commands of the law that affect other people. One commentator said this, The two commandments to love God and to love one neighbor summarizes the law and the prophets. Every one of the commandments either concerns a person's relationship to God or relationship to other beings. If they love God with their entire being, they will naturally keep the commandments and control their relationship to him. If they love their neighbors, they will keep those as well. Um, so many times, I'm just speaking off cuff and off script at the current moment. Um, so many times we get end up just like the Pharisees. Let's just be honest here. Okay. That we are more concerned about the do's and do nots. We're more concerned about the appearances of spirituality rather than the reality of spirituality. We're so focused on um, all the habit control and not on the internal relationship with God that we're supposed to have. Think about it. God wants to have a relationship with you. I mean, okay, okay. If you're still not convinced of that, let's just say that you've been taught that Christianity is just about going to church, reading your Bible every once in a while, and all that stuff. Okay, let's just. How can I prove to you that following God is having a relationship with Him? A couple different things. Well, number one, He created you for a reason. Okay, we exist for a reason to know Him. But then number two, as a Christian, what do you have inside of you? You have the Spirit of God indwelt inside of you. If that doesn't prove that you're supposed to have a relationship with God, I don't know what else would. The Scripture is abundantly clear that our design, our purpose, the greatest commandment in all the law is to love the Lord our God with all of our emotions, actions, and knowledge, and to love our neighbor as ourself. What is the Christian life all about? It's all about loving God and loving others. And I'm going to get done early today. Okay. Um, the question I have is, so what? You know, how does this passage apply to our life? You know, I, I, can I just say something really quick? Um, whenever I do application or whenever I ask questions, my, my intention is, is never to be shaming or guilt tripping or Indian burning. That's not cool. I, I really try not to do that. I, said, I heard a preacher say one time, 
that grace without truth is meaningless and truth without grace is mean. Okay, and I was like, okay, that's actually, that's actually pretty good. You know, my, my goal is not to, you know, Indian burn your arm. My goal is just to draw us in and ask ourselves sincere and honest questions. So the question I have is, so what? How do we take this passage, this great commandment, and apply it to our lives? This is what I want to do this week. I want you to go on a walk, okay, with Jesus and with God. I want you to just walk in nature and just go on a hike or walk around the neighborhood, whatever. You can be one of those mall walkers with the, with the weights. That's cool, too. Eat Chick-fil-A as you walk around the mall. Uh, that's what I would do. Uh, put calories in as I burn calories, right? So it defeats the purpose. Um, what I want you to do is I, I just want you to watch game film. I want you to just look at your life. I would imagine the first time a football player ever watches himself on film is pretty, pretty awkward, okay? And what I want you to do is just kind of watch game film about your life. And just ask yourself the question, do I love the Lord my God? Do I really believe that the Christian life is about having a relationship with Him that is real and that is intimate, that you can follow Him and walk by the Spirit and walk according to the Word? That, that the Christian life is really about knowing Yahweh. But then I want you to ask yourself the question, okay, what areas of my life am I weakest at? You know, we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, with all of our emotions, actions, and feelings. Which of those three is your go-to, right? And which of them is your weakest one? You track with me? That's all I want you to do. I want you to just look at your relationship with God and ask, okay, which one of these is my strong suit and which one is my weakest at? Let's just be honest. Here, man, okay, as a, okay, as a pastor, guess what you do all day long? I mean, some people think I just sit in the library probably or go drink coffee. Um, that's not really what I do all day long. I'm, I'm active. I have actions for the Lord. I do stuff. So serving the God with my soul is kind of par for the course. But then also, like, Byron Nerdville is, loves the Lord of God with all their mind. That's the, those are the two that I do all the time. So my weakest point is loving the Lord of God with all my emotions and heart. I was sitting at Ditto Landing this week, working on the sermon. And if you've never been to Ditto Landing on the south end of town, it's really nice, man. Just sit there right by the river. I was in my truck, typing away, researching, and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought about myself. I looked into the mirror of my soul, and I thought this exact thing. So it's easy for me to love God with my mind and soul, but the third one's really difficult for me. I'm just super duper duper nerd. Okay, that's who I am. So what I've done over the years to help compensate for this is I read the Psalms. If you have been on the Wednesday night prayer meeting and you've heard me share a devotion, guess what? I've shared every Wednesday for the last six years is a Psalm. I have. I'm not, this is not saying to brag, but I have memorized more psalms than any other book of the Bible. Why? Because I realize that that is my weakness. The passion, the feeling of God. You being on fire for Him, right? I can resort to having just a big nerd fest, writing my own systematic theology book. But, but in, in, encountering God through the psalms, through worship music. And what I like to do too, if you struggle with the heart, is I like to put around me really passionate people. Really emotive people. Because I realize that it's a weakness of mine. So my question is, number one, what is your go-to? And then number two, what is your, what's your weak point in your relationship with the Lord? And then my last application is, so number one is to love the Lord your God. And then number two is to love others. And my question for you is this. Who is someone in your life 
that is in proximity to you, that you see all the time, that you see in the grocery store, you see in the restaurant constantly, who is somebody in your life that God is asking you to love? Who is somebody in your life that God is asking you to love, to care for? Some of the people that God asks us to love and to care for are those that drive us most crazy. Or the people that have burned us and hurt us and betrayed our trust. Maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life that you need to show love and care to. Who is someone in your life that God is calling you to love as yourself? So what is the Christian life all about? Love God and love others. Alright, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to respond and then I'll be quiet, okay? What is the Christian life all about? It is to love God and love others. If I'm remembered for only one sermon in my whole life, I hope it's that one. Because that's what it's all about. Um, before I close, I would just like to share the gospel, the good news. And I'm going to be really brief today. My question on the gospel is, number one, have you surrendered your life to the Lord? I think sometimes we get... This is we get analysis paralysis. I get all into justification and, and you know sanctification and all this kind of stuff. And those are all good and wonderful. I'm not disparaging that. You should go there. But but I, I just want to boil down the gospel to the simplest, finest element. The gospel is this that we are sinners, that we need to be saved, that we need somebody to pay for our sin in full. We need forgiveness of our transgressions and sins. And so God sent forth his son. As a perfect man, a, a man without the sin nature of Adam. That's why the virgin birth is absolutely critical to the Christian faith. Sorry, I told you I'd be simple, but that was okay. Moving on. So Jesus Christ came and he died. Uh, he lived a perfect life so he could take on the sins of the world. And that because of his death, we can be reconciled to God, standing before God the Father, justified and forgiven of all of our sin. That is the gospel in a nutshell. But the question I have... It's not do you know the gospel, but the question I have is, have you surrendered your life to the Lord? Have you ever, in a moment in time, just said to the Lord, I, I will follow you and I believe in your son. I believe that you've come, you've forgiven my sins, and I surrender to you with all my life. If you've never done anything like that, I would encourage you to go before the Lord today. And you can talk to me after the service as well. But what is the Christian life all about it is to love God and love others. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word and how uh, plain it is in the Gospel of Matthew. And Lord, the, uh, how you worked out the events of that time period to get a lawyer to come up to him and ask this simple question right before your death. And Lord, I pray that we as Christians, we as followers, we as people that have surrendered our life to the Lord... I pray that we would not make Christianity about what it's not. About just going through the motions, the do's and don'ts, about appearing a certain way. Lord, all that is, is foolhardy. Lord, I pray that we would want to pursue a relationship with you. To open your word through the power of your spirit and understand what you would have for us to do. And how do we change our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be patient with those around us. Lord, that we would love those near us as ourselves. Lord, thank you for this church. I, um, I just thank you just for all the ways that you're working. I, um, 
many of the ways you've worked in the last six months, I only dreamt of six years ago. And we rejoice and I celebrate that. And we thank you for all the ways you've worked. And thank you for the generosity and faithfulness of these people. I thank you for their friendship and just part of the family of God that we are. And uh, be with the rest of our service today. And thank you for them. I just thank you for all of the people of Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen.